0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Billionaire hedge fund manager and philanthropist Ray Dalio joins the Post to discuss the massive gaps in wealth, value and politics and what President Biden can do to restore U.S. prosperity. Let's listen.
1: Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Post. Today on The Path Forward, our guest is Ray Dalio the founder of Bridgewater Associates, which is one of the largest hedge funds in the world. He's also someone who has thought and written deeply about some of the crises that he sees as being ahead for our economy and our political system uh, unless we can fix uh, problems. Ray, it's great to have you back on the show. Welcome.
0: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
1: So we're going to talk about uh, a lot of the deep structural issues that are facing our economy and political system. But I want to start with something that I sure didn't see coming this week in the financial markets, and that's the 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 so-called uh, uh, Robin Hood market, the way in which GameStop and other stocks were bid up by people who seem to see themselves as Uh, stock market populace. I'll quote from something that we wrote in the Washington Post yesterday. People claiming to have purchased GameStop shares have framed their efforts as a financial rebellion, collective payback for the Wall Street giants that place what they view as reckless bets and have long exploited the financial system at the expense of the little person. This stuff is complicated, but maybe you could walk our, our listeners through Uh, What's happened and also give your opinion about whether this is in fact a kind of populist revolt or is it a pyramid scheme?
0: Uh, They remind me a lot of me You know at that age, you know, I started investing at an early age and I was uh, Rebellious or and wanted to uh, do it my way and bring it down and um, and um, They're um, using the mechanics of the markets um, they're squeezing the shorts um, and then and, and rebellion, um, if it's not uh, d- destructive, um, if it's not antagonistic, is part of an evolutionary uh, process. Of course, it raises questions about liquidity and information and um, legal questions. Um, but uh, they're beginning to understand the mechanics of the bo- market, and those who are being uh, squeezed are beginning to understand the m- mechanics. Uh, what concerns me more um, is the general um, anger that and, and almost hate and the view of bringing people down that's now pervasive in almost all aspects of the country. Um, When we're dealing with um, different values of um, some on the left that are extreme, some on the right on the extreme, and there's hate, Um, you know, I have an expression, uh, when the causes that people are behind are more important than the system, uh, the system is in jeopardy. And so, that general um, desire to hurt each other and the issues that we face that have to be resolved that are not easily resolved more generally is of concern to me. Let me ask you specifically
1: about about this market disruption, the, the sharp increase in, in prices for some of these uh, uh, stocks. Do you have any cons- concerns about the structural soundness uh, of our financial markets? Did you see anything this week that would give you concerns about liquidity, about underlying v- vulnerabilities that would make us think back to 2008, 2009, the, the kind of structural problems we saw then?
0: No, liquidity uh, problems, uh, you know, come and go. And then there's the mechanics. Um, there's a certain speed of trading, there's certain algorithms that have trading um, that have these uh, effects and can create dislocations. Uh, they've been with us and um, you know they exist, but it's part of an evolutionary system in which you find problems and then you rectify them and deal with them. What I'm really concerned about is that 2008 um, represented what we have as a worse situation than 2008 now regarding the finances um, so if you look at history and repeat over periods of time um, there is the creation of money and debt to get spot, to get buying power but that is being produced by central banks that print that money uh, because uh, they can't finance the debt any other way. And that particular dynamic and the extension of it, which is repeated out in time, that if you like, I'll explain a little bit more of, um, that is the big concern. Um, So there's a lot of money slashing around, but if you think about it, the wave of financial assets, and we taught bonds and, and, and debt as alike, is believed to be, it gives buying power, but it's also believed to be that one could sell one's bonds and assets and buy goods and services with that, but the amount that exists out there that are claims is far greater than would be allowed to happen. So there's a financial situation, which is deeply of concern to me. Uh, and to some extent, it's uh, um, it provides the liquidity for some of these things to happen. But the things that are happening here, um, other than being reflective of the liquidity, um, are really just part of this bigger problem, I think. We have, Ray, a current uh, debate over what
1: could be the next chapter in your story, but it's a complicated debate. Let let me summarize it. The the new Biden administration is on Capitol Hill urging a big stimulus package totaling $1.9 trillion on the argument that with interest rates as low as they are, with the country needing to rebound from the pandemic and lockdown, with with the need for uh, stimulative spending and investment, this is the time to go ahead and do that. Even though it's an enormous amount of money and debt to be taking taking on, what's what's your response to that argument? Which I'm sure you hear every day, as we all do.
0: Um, it's not. Uh, there's not enough financial resources and money to go around. And so I understand the needs for that kind of spending and uh, and the actions that have been taken uh, so far in terms of that kind of stimulus. Uh, But it is a mistake um, to believe that um, the lower interest rates and the debt service payments are the only consideration because all those bonds, the debt, is converted into a bond and has to be sold. And it has to be sold to buyers who then find it attractive enough to own it. Um, these interest rates are minus 1% in inflation-adjusted terms and about 1%, a little over, in, in actual terms. And the, they build a pile of those debts that the bondholders believe they can turn into buying power by selling the bonds and making that purchase. I don't mean to sound technical, but what I mean is that when you have a lot of claims of assets, they're not providing a good return. There's a, and you have the world own too many of them. Um, it's not probably going to be able to be bought by those. Uh, That means that they will have to, uh, the Federal Reserve will have to make up a gap, a funding gap. Uh, The upshot of this is it is in cycles. This has happened throughout history. You can go back thousands of years and you see the pattern. And that pattern is uh, not a pattern of self of good finance, it risks the dollar. It risks um, that the possibility that that won't be a good storehold of wealth. Those those bonds, and that's not good sound finances. So one should not delude oneself into believing that because interest rates are low, that um, that that's not um, a problem. I think it'll be a problem. I think one of the most important things to consider too. is is that um, money that's going to be um, expended also going to be productive in terms of producing goods and services and so on in its way? I don't think we're paying enough attention to productivity either. So I'm just a mechanic looking at how the machine works and my definition of the machine is that uh, it's very concerning.
1: Uh, the, your point that we need to look at uh, precisely how this uh, enormous amount of money is going to be spent and whether it it will will be spent productively to, to really stimulate uh, growth is, is an important one. I want to just uh, pause a minute and ask you to to uh, share your uh, thoughts about Janet Yellen, our new Treasury Secretary. Janet Yellen has uh, deep experience as a central banker. She's got uh, a Extraordinary resume, uh, but not everything she has done as a central banker, I would guess you would you would endorse. What's your evaluation of her? And if you could share what you're hearing from friends in the financial markets on Wall Street, what does Wall Street think of her?
0: Well, I think, as you say, I think she's um, skilled, experienced, um, has a broad perspective, and also understands the uh, social issues and the political issues well Um, I do think um, that um, she might overemphasize the business cycle part of it in other words when she tightened monetary policy um, I think she was thinking that the traditional economy would have a higher level of inflation and I and then there and then there was a readjustment in that thinking which was um, appropriate I don't, I worry that uh, about the understanding of the total balance of payments position. I think the United States has gotten used to being the real world's reserve currency, which meant that they think that whatever we can sell the rest of the world, the world will buy and we're not subject to constraints or that dynamic. So that concerns me um, a bit. But I, um, I think um, you have uh, all things considered. Uh, you know, a capable and open-minded person who is in a very difficult situation. I think sometimes um, we think that if we get a good leader, president of the United States or treasury secretary or someone, that they can deal with the issues and bring about good results. There are sometimes circumstances that they find themselves in Which the United States is largely in, which is it spends more than it earns and it finances it with debt by a lot and it has to sell those bonds. And there are no easy answers to that. And so the position uh, that she's in um, and the um, are very difficult circumstances. So when one goes through the mechanics, Ah, uh, you could have a very good person in the job, and uh, that doesn't necessarily uh, lead to uh, you know great results because the circumstances of the maneuverability is different. And so I give that example, and, um, they had to put out um uh, they had to send the checks. Uh if they didn't send the checks, let's look back. If they didn't send those checks and then and the Federal Reserve did not provide the support, we would have had a rebellion. We would have had people. Who needed the money? Get not get it. You have a class warfare issue, and you would have had companies fall, uh, fail. So they had to do that. But as that circumstances meant that they had to produce debt, and they had to produce money. So there's a mechanics to that. Now that set of circumstances will exist, and they will, and the world, Republicans and Democrats, will debate. 500 billion here or there or something but the big picture is that, that situation is ahead of us and it's politically challenging it's you know um, so that we bring in the politics um, as I say there are three big things we're talking about the finances there are three big factors and then we throw in the virus uh, the three big factors are this financial dynamic that we're talking about the second is um, the polarity that exists in wealth values and politics, which is extreme, the class warfare, the actual wi- willingness and eagerness almost to inflict harm on the other side, and the absence of reasonableness, is at its greatest extreme. I look at statistics, and I go back, and it, you would have to you go back to 1900 to find something like this, and Then we have um, the rising of uh, a great power, China, to challenge an existing great power. Those three factors, the financial factor, the wealth gap and political factor, and the rise of a great power, the last time those things happened were in the 1930s. And if you look at history going back over periods of time before that, hundreds of years, I made a point of studying the last 500 years, if people are interested, it's on LinkedIn, it's called the changing world order. You could see these patterns in history. Those are the circumstances that we're facing. And so uh, the issue really, I think, is can we face those things in a skillful way and a bipartisan way so that we don't do ourselves uh, even more harm than the circumstances have brought us as a challenge? So, Ray, let's let's look together at the images that are seared in
1: all of our minds uh, from several weeks ago, the storming of the U.S. Capitol, something I think most of us could never have imagined seeing. You have just uh, outlined your view that we're in a crisis like the 1930s in which political violence became norm uh, across europe in so many countries with catastrophic results and i want to ask you uh, what went on in your mind as you watched those images of the capitol being stormed how would you explain that phenomenon and then more to the point what do you think we should do about it to try to keep this country from blowing up uh, again and again in, in ways that uh, will just provide recurring crises. What did you think when you saw the capital being stormed?
0: i I, I honestly wasn't uh, surprised. I um, um, chapters eight and nine in in that book uh, which are called um, internal Dis- Internal Order and Disorder through History um, gave the circumstances. Uh, I think one only has to see history to understand. Uh, One needs to see the history that what's happened here is repeated repeatedly through history. There are irreconcilable differences, lines that people um, almost can't compromise Um, and survey results. uh, Something like I think the the statistics are um, 15 percent of the Republican surveys and 20 percent of the Democrat surveys wish members of the other party would die. Um, you have, um, they don't want to, a large percentage would not want their son or daughter to marry a member of the other party. Um, there are irreconcilable differences. And when they come down, like I said before, if the causes that people are behind are more important than the system, the system's in jeopardy. So it's deep-seated and there's not a good resolution. So I would say now to carry it to the next, I applaud President Biden's desire um, to be president of the United States. And that includes members of the um, uh, Republican, let's say those of red states and those of blue states, because history has shown if you cross the line too much in their values and so on you you're going to have a civil war of sorts um, however, I think it's very difficult and so when you ask the question of you know what should be done, um, I think members of both parties have got a if I was president, I would want to uh, bring in to the to my tent um, representatives of the other side. Um, to try to deal with the management of uh, the whole. I personally don't care what solutions are reached uh, ideologically as long as um, they're done in a bipartisan way that the majority of Americans um, support and that if they're done smartly so that they don't um, stupidly create a policy of spending or or a tax or a social policy that becomes damaging. The problem we have is to agree on that. And, you know, I I, so what to do, I would say uh, you have to have a if I was president of the United States and this I don't think is going to happen. But if I was president of the United States, I would have a bipartisan bipartisan Manhattan Project type of exercise in which I would have both brought in, and uh, and um, over a number of months, almost um, and skills and to work it through because there are structural issues, important big structural issues that they're not easy answers to, and so they I, have to. I assume work
1: here you I assume things. here, Ray, you're talking about some kind of national. Commission that would seek to look at the, the issues that we're so divided over. And that's a proposal that many people have made. Let, let me ask you about the proposal that's on the table, which is the impeachment of, of President Trump. Uh, there is a, a question now about whether it's wise to follow through in the Senate with a trial in which it's pretty much certain that uh, President Trump will not be convicted. What effect do you think that would have on the political situation in the country? And let me also ask, what effect would it have on the financial markets?
0: I don't think it would have much of an effect on the financial markets. That's some an, an, a domain that I uh, feel uh, comfortable to uh, speak about. Um, regarding uh, the politics and what should happen and the legal uh, issues and all of that, I'm not Prepared to uh, comment about. Um, I do. I am more broadly worried about um, this 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 conflict. But I can't be. The, I don't feel. Consider myself the expert on commenting on whether that should proceed or not. Fair, fair enough. Let me re- return to
1: something you said earlier, which is fascinating. Which is in a lot of your recent writing. And that is a concern that the dollar may be losing its status as the world's reserve currency, the currency in which people do their deals, uh, finance their transactions. How serious a problem do you think that is? And do you think the Chinese are prepared to make their currency, the yuan, over time, more uh, a store of value, uh, a reserve currency for the world?
0: Uh, It's a major issue. Um, debt is money. Uh, when you produce debt, you, it's an obligation when you're holding a bond to deliver money and you have to produce money and we're producing a lot of it. And if you look at the holdings in the world of bonds and who is holding them, uh, there's less, they're overweighted in bonds and therefore overweighted in dollars and dollar, assets and there's um and we're going to try to sell a lot more and that has created um a risk for the dollar the dollar's down about twelve percent uh since the actions have taken place it's an issue it's important because if you lose your reserve currency status you lose your exorbitant privilege really to get money and borrow it when you need it so it's a risk uh so, um that money can go into an alternative currency or it can go into alternative assets. Traditionally, all devaluations uh, drive money into stocks, gold, other assets. And so you're, you don't have to just go to another currency uh, in order to escape the bonds. You see devaluations of um, the dollar in relationship to all financial assets. But it's also coming at a time when China is uh, also um, opening up its financial markets, and the world is underweighted in its financial markets, it's a viable economic alternative. It's a viable economic competitor. Um, it's developing more um, uh, capital markets. It's the second most important capital markets. They are opening up, and because the world is overweight in U.S. dollars, the Flow into that to rebalance is strengthening the RMB, and um, the Chinese have intentionally not developed it because it's somewhat the internationalization of the RMB. But now there is the internationalization of the mmv So to put it in perspective, China is now the largest uh, country in trade in world trade exports, imports. It's larger than the United States. It's the largest in the world. And yet, um, virtually none of its transactions are done in its currency, about 2%. So, um, there will naturally, increasingly be that, um, the internationalization, and it will represent an alternative. And that's why then we have the issues of uh, capital wars, which traditionally, this has happened through cycles. The Dutch and the Dutch Gilder, the British and the British Pound, the American cycle, and now the Chinese. And as a result of that, we're going to see more of that kind of movement. So,
1: Ray, uh, we have about two minutes left. I want to just close with a question. This is the week that uh, the Davos uh, World Economic Forum normally would take place in Switzerland. I I gather there was a virtual Davos, and I'd be surprised if you hadn't been one of the participants. What's the buzz among the, the Davos crowd as they look at developments in the United States, they look at the global economy? What what do you hear from, from major financial players?
0: I don't know that I've had an adequate um, survey, but I can say to the people just generally I speak to, um, uh, they share um, a lot my my thinking and uh, you know, there's a concern about, um, you know, even really uh, talking about some of these these things. And, um, and then I think, you know, there's a growing uh, worry too about the implications of COVID and the rate at which around the world it will be resolved. So
1: uh, we've had a wonderful chance to Talk through some big issues with with Ray Dalio. I heard some uh, careful uh, f- phrasing of support for both President Biden and, and his Treasury secretary, but also noting just how serious these problems are. Ray, thank you so much for joining us again. We really uh, enjoyed the
0: conversation it's, it's my pleasure. thank you for having me.
1: So uh, I'll be back next week on uh, Tuesday at 1:30 talking with. Dr. Anthony Fauci about uh, COVID-19 and vaccination and where we're going in dealing with this terrible pandemic. Uh, Please uh, join us, have a great weekend. Thanks for watching Washington Post Live.
0: Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.